Section 8 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. The Progress of Knowledge, Fontenelle, Part 1. 1. Nine months before the first part of Perrault's work appeared, a younger and more brilliant man had formulated, in a short tract, the essential points of the doctrine of the progress of knowledge. It was Fontenelle. Fontenelle was an anima naturaliter moderna. Trained in the principles of Descartes, he was one of those who, though like Descartes himself, too critical to swear by a master, appreciated unreservedly the value of the Cartesian method. Sometimes, he says, a great man gives the tone to his age, and this is true of Descartes, who can claim the glory of having established a new art of reasoning. He sees the effects in literature. The best books on moral and political subjects are distinguished by an arrangement and precision which he traces to the esprit géométrique characteristic of Descartes. Footnote. Sur l'utilité des mathématiques et de la physique. Oeuvre 3, page 6, edition 1729. End of footnote. Fontenelle himself had this geometrical mind, which we see at its best in Descartes and Hobbes and Spinoza. He had indeed a considerable aptitude for letters. He wrote poor verses and could not distinguish good poetry from bad. That perhaps was the defect of l'esprit géométrique. But he wrote lucid prose. There was an ironical side to his temper, and he had an ingenious paradoxical wit, which he indulged, with no little felicity, in his early work, Dialogues of the Dead. These conversations, though they show no dramatic power and are simply a vehicle for the author's satirical criticisms on life, are written with a light touch and are full of surprises and unexpected turns. The very choice of the interlocutors shows a curious fancy which we do not associate with the geometrical intellect. Descartes is confronted with the third false Demetrius, and we wonder what the gourmet Apicius will find to say to Galileo. 2. In the Dialogues of the Dead, which appeared in 1683, the ancient and modern controversy is touched on more than once, and it is the subject of the conversation between Socrates and Montaigne. Socrates ironically professes to expect that the age of Montaigne will show a vast improvement on his own, that men will have profited by the experience of many centuries, and that the old age of the world will be wiser and better regulated than its youth. Montaigne assures him that it is not so, and that the vigorous types of antiquity, like Pericles, Aristides, and Socrates himself, are no longer to be found. To this assertion Socrates opposes the doctrine of the permanence of the forces of nature, Nature has not degenerated in her other works. Why should she cease to produce reasonable men? He goes on to observe that antiquity is enlarged and exalted by distance. Quote, in our own day we esteemed our ancestors more than they deserved, and now our posterity esteems us more than we deserve. There is really no difference between our ancestors, ourselves, and our posterity. C'est toujours la même chose. Close quote. But, objects Montaigne, I should have thought that things were always changing, that different ages had their different characters. Are there not ages of learning and ages of ignorance, rude ages and polite? True, replies Socrates, but these are only externalities. The heart of man does not change with the fashions of his life. The order of nature remains constant. L'ordre général de la nature a l'air bien constant. This conclusion harmonizes with the general spirit of the dialogues. The permanence of the forces of nature is asserted, but for the purpose of dismissing the whole controversy as rather futile. Elsewhere, modern discoveries, like the circulation of the blood and the motions of the earth, are criticized as useless, adding nothing to the happiness and pleasures of mankind. 
men acquired at an early period a certain amount of useful knowledge to which they have added nothing. Since then they have been slowly discovering things that are unnecessary. Nature has not been so unjust as to allow one age to enjoy more pleasures than another. And what is the value of civilization? It molds our words and embarrasses our actions. It does not affect our feelings. Footnote. See the dialogues of Harvey with Erasistratus, a Greek physician of the 3rd century B.C., Galileo with Apicius, Montezuma with Fernando Cortez. End of footnote. One might hardly have expected the author of these dialogues to come forward a few years later as a champion of the moderns, even though, in the dedicatory epistle to Lucian, he compared France to Greece. But he was seriously interested in the debated question as an intellectual problem, and in January 1688 he published his digression on the ancients and moderns, a short pamphlet but weightier and more suggestive than the large work of his friend Perrault, which began to appear nine months later. 3. The question of preeminence between the ancients and moderns is reducible to another. Were trees in ancient times greater than today? If they were, then Homer, Plato, and Demosthenes cannot be equaled in modern times. If they were not, they can. Fontenelle states the problem in this succinct way at the beginning of the digression. The permanence of the forces of nature had been asserted by Saint-Sorlin and Perrault. They had offered no proof, and had used the principle rather incidentally and by way of illustration. But the whole inquiry hinged on it. If it can be shown that man has not degenerated, the cause of the moderns is practically one. The issue of the controversy must be decided not by rhetoric, but by physics and Fontenelle offers what he regards as a formal Cartesian proof of the permanence of natural forces. If the ancients had better intellects than ours, the brains of that age must have been better arranged, formed of firmer or more delicate fibers, fuller of animal spirits. But if such a difference existed, nature must have been more vigorous, and in that case the trees must have profited by that superior vigor and have been larger and finer. The truth is that nature has in her hands a certain paste which is always the same, which she is ever turning over and over again in a thousand ways, and of which she forms men, animals, and plants. She has not formed Homer, Demosthenes, and Plato of a finer or better kneaded clay than our poets, orators, and philosophers. Do not object that minds are not material. They are connected by a material bond with the brain, and it is the quality of this material bond that determines intellectual differences. But although natural processes do not change from age to age, they differ in their effects in different climates. Quote, it is certain that as a result of the reciprocal dependence which exists between all parts of the material world, differences of climate, which so clearly affect the life of plants, must also produce some effect on human brains. Close quote. May it not be said then that, in consequence of climatic conditions, Ancient Greece and Rome produced men of mental qualities different from those which could be produced in France? Oranges grow easily in Italy. It is more difficult to cultivate them in France. Fontenelle replies that art and cultivation exert a much greater influence on human brains than on the soil. Ideas can be transported more easily from one country to another than plants, and as a consequence of commerce and mutual influence, peoples do not retain the original mental peculiarities due to climate. This may not be true of the extreme climates in the torrid and glacial zones, but in the temperate zone we may discount entirely climatic influence. The climates of Greece and Italy and that of France are too similar to cause any sensible difference between the Greeks or Latins and the French. Saint-Sorlin and Perrault had argued directly from the permanence of vigor in lions or trees to the permanence of vigor in man. 
If trees are the same as ever, brains must also be the same. But what about the minor premise? Who knows that trees are precisely the same? It is an indemonstrable assumption that oaks and beeches in the days of Socrates and Cicero were not slightly better trees than the oaks and beeches of today. Fontenelle saw the weakness of this reasoning. He saw that it was necessary to prove that the trees, no less than human brains, have not degenerated. But his a priori proof is simply a statement of the Cartesian principle of the stability of natural processes, which he put in a thoroughly unscientific form. The stability of the laws of nature is a necessary hypothesis, without which science would be impossible. But here it was put to an illegitimate use. For it means that, given precisely the same conditions, the same physical phenomena will occur. Fontenelle, therefore, was bound to show that conditions had not altered in such a way as to cause changes in the quality of nature's organic productions. He did not do this. He did not take into consideration, for instance, that climatic conditions may vary from age to age as well as from country to country. 4. Having established the natural equality of the ancients and moderns, Fontenelle inferred that whatever differences exist are due to external conditions. 1. Time. 2 political institutions, and the state of affairs in general. The ancients were prior in time to us, therefore they were the authors of the first inventions. For that, they cannot be regarded as our superiors. If we had been in their place, we should have been the inventors like them. If they were in ours, they would add to those inventions, like us. There is no great mystery in that. We must impute equal merit to the early thinkers who showed the way, and to the later thinkers who pursued it. If the ancient attempts to explain the universe have been recently replaced by the discovery of a simple system, the Cartesian, we must consider that the truth could only be reached by the elimination of false roots, and in this way the numbers of the Pythagoreans, the ideas of Plato, the qualities of Aristotle, all served indirectly to advance knowledge. Quote, we are under an obligation to the ancients for having exhausted almost all the false theories that could be formed. Close quote enlightened both by their true views and by their errors, it is not surprising that we should surpass them. But all this applies only to scientific studies, like mathematics, physics, and medicine, which depend partly on correct reasoning and partly on experience. Methods of reasoning improve slowly, and the most important advance which has been made in the present age is the method inaugurated by Descartes. Before him reasoning was loose. He introduced a more rigid and precise standard, and its influence is not only manifest in our best works on physics and philosophy, but is even discernible in books on ethics and religion. We must expect posterity to excel us as we excel the ancients, through improvement of method, which is a science in itself, the most difficult and least studied of all, and through increase of experience. Evidently the process is endless, il est évident que tout cela n'a point de fin, and the latest men of science must be the most competent. But this does not apply to poetry or eloquence, round which the controversy has most violently raged. For poetry and eloquence do not depend on correct reasoning. They depend principally on vivacity of imagination, and, quote, vivacity of imagination does not require a long course of experiments, or a great multitude of rules, to attain all the perfection of which it is capable, close quote. Such perfection might be attained in a few centuries. If the ancients did achieve perfection in imaginative literature, it follows that they cannot be surpassed. But we have no right to say, as their admirers are fond of pretending, that they cannot be equaled. 5. Besides the mere nature of time, we have to take into account external circumstances in considering this question. 
If the forces of nature are permanent, how are we to explain the fact that in the barbarous centuries after the decline of Rome, the term Middle Ages has not yet come into currency, ignorance was so dense and deep? This breach of continuity is one of the plausible arguments of the advocates of the ancients. Those ages, they say, were ignorant and barbarous because the Greek and Latin writers had ceased to be read. As soon as the study of the classical models revived, there was a renaissance of reason and good taste. That is true, but it proves nothing. Nature never forgot how to mold the head of Cicero or Livy. She produces in every age men who might be great men, but the age does not always allow them to exert their talents. Inundations of barbarians, universal wars, governments which discourage or do not favor science and art, prejudices which assume all variety of shapes, like the Chinese prejudice against dissecting corpses, may impose long periods of ignorance or bad taste. But observe that, though the return to the study of the ancients revived, as at one stroke, the aesthetic ideals which they had created, and the learning which they had accumulated, yet even if their works had not been preserved, we should, though it would have cost us many long years of labor, have discovered for ourselves ideas of the true and the beautiful. Where should we have found them? Where the ancients themselves found them, after much groping. 6. The comparison of the life of collective humanity to the life of a single man, which had been drawn by Bacon and Pascal, Saint-Sorlin and Perrault, contains or illustrates an important truth which bears on the whole question. Fontenelle puts it thus, An educated mind is, as it were, composed of all the minds of preceding ages. We might say that a single mind was being educated through all history. Thus this secular man, who has lived since the beginning of the world, has had his infancy in which he was absorbed by the most urgent needs of life, his youth in which he succeeded pretty well in things of imagination like poetry and eloquence, and even began to reason, but with more courage than solidity. He is now in the age of manhood, is more enlightened, and reasons better. But he would have advanced further if the passion for war had not distracted him and given him a distaste for the sciences to which he has at last returned. Figures, if they are pressed, are dangerous. They suggest unwarrantable conclusions. It may be illuminative to liken the development of humanity to the growth of an individual, but to infer that the human race is now in its old age, merely on the strength of the comparison, is obviously unjustifiable. That is what Bacon and the others had done. The fallacy was pointed out by Fontenelle. From his point of view, an old age of humanity, which if it meant anything meant decay as well as the wisdom of experience, was contrary to the principle of the permanence of natural forces. Man, he asserts, will have no old age. He will be always equally capable of achieving the successes of his youth, and he will become more and more expert in the things which become the age of virility. Or, to drop metaphor, men will never degenerate. In ages to come, we may be regarded, say, in America, with the same excess of admiration with which we regard the ancients. We might push the prediction further. In still later ages, the interval of time which divides us from the Greeks and Romans will appear so relatively small to posterity that they will classify us and the ancients as virtually contemporary. Just in the same way as we group together the Greeks and Romans, though the Romans in their own day were moderns in relation to the Greeks. In that remote period, men will be able to judge without prejudice the comparative merits of Sophocles and Corneille. Unreasonable admiration for the ancients is one of the chief obstacles to progress, le progrès des choses. Philosophy not only did not advance, but even fell into an abyss of unintelligible ideas, because, through devotion to the authority of Aristotle, men sought truth in his enigmatic writings instead of seeking it in nature. 
if the authority of Descartes were ever to have the same fortune, the results would be no less disastrous. 7. This memorable brochure exhibits, without pedantry, perspicuous arrangement and the geometrical precision on which Fontenelle remarked as one of the notes of the new epoch introduced by Descartes. It displays, too, the author's open-mindedness and his readiness to follow where the argument leads. He is able already to look beyond Cartesianism. He knows that it cannot be final. No man of his time was more open-minded and free from prejudice than Fontenelle. This quality of mind helped him to turn his eyes to the future. Perrault and his predecessors were absorbed in the interest of the present and the past. Descartes was too much engaged in his own original discoveries to do more than throw a passing glance at posterity. Now the prospect of the future was one of the two elements which were still needed to fashion the theory of the progress of knowledge. All the conditions for such a theory were present. Baudin and Bacon, Descartes and the champions of the moderns, the reaction against the Renaissance and the startling discoveries of science, had prepared the way. Progress was established for the past and present. But the theory of the progress of knowledge includes, and acquires its value by including, the indefinite future. This step was taken by Fontenelle. The idea had been almost excluded by Bacon's misleading metaphor of old age, which Fontenelle expressly rejects. Man will have no old age, his intellect will never degenerate, and the sound views of intellectual men in successive generations will continually add up. But progress must not only be conceived as extending indefinitely into the future, it must also be conceived as necessary and certain. This is the second essential feature of the theory. The theory would have little value or significance if the prospect of progress in the future depended on chance or the unpredictable discretion of an external will. Fontenelle asserts implicitly the certainty of progress when he declares that the discoveries and improvements of the modern age would have been made by the ancients if they exchanged places with the moderns. For this amounts to saying that science will progress and knowledge increase independently of particular individuals. If Descartes had not been born, someone else would have done his work and there could have been no Descartes before the 17th century. For, as he says in a later work, quote, there is an order which regulates our progress. Every science develops after a certain number of preceding sciences have developed, and only then. It has to await its turn to burst its shell. Close quote. Footnote. Préface des éléments de la géométrie de l'infini. Oeuvre 10, page 40, edition 1790. End of footnote. Fontenelle, then, was the first to formulate the idea of the progress of knowledge as a complete doctrine. At the moment, the import and far-reaching effects of the idea were not realized, either by himself or by others, and his pamphlet, which appeared in the company of a perverse theory of pastoral poetry, was acclaimed merely as an able defense of the moderns. 8. If the theory of the indefinite progress of knowledge is true, it is one of those truths which were originally established by false reasoning. It was established on a principle which excluded degeneration, but equally excluded evolution, and the whole conception of nature which Fontenelle had learned from Descartes is long since dead and buried. But it is more important to observe that this principle, which seemed to secure the indefinite progress of knowledge, disabled Fontenelle from suggesting a theory of the progress of society. The invariability of nature, as he conceived it, was true of the emotions and the will as well as of the intellect. It implied that man himself would be psychically always the same, unalterable, incurable. L'ordre général de la nature a l'air bien constant. His opinion of the human race was expressed in the Dialogues of the Dead, and it never seems to have varied. Footnote. It may be seen, too, in the plurality of worlds. End of footnote. 
The world consists of a multitude of fools and a mere handful of reasonable men. Men's passions will always be the same and will produce wars in the future as in the past. Civilization makes no difference. It is little more than a veneer. Even if theory had not stood in his way, Fontenelle was the last man who was likely to dream dreams of social improvement. He was temperamentally an Epicurean, of the same refined stamp as Epicurus himself, and he enjoyed throughout his long life, he lived to the age of a hundred, the tranquillity which was the true Epicurean ideal. He was never troubled by domestic cares, and his own modest ambition was satisfied when, at the age of forty, he was appointed permanent secretary of the Academy of Sciences. He was not the man to let his mind dwell on the woes and evils of the world, and the follies and perversities which caused them interested him only so far as they provided material for his wit. It remains, however, noteworthy that the author of the theory of the progress of knowledge, which was afterwards to expand into a general theory of human progress, would not have allowed that this extension was legitimate, though it was through this extension that Fontenelle's idea acquired human value and interest and became a force in the world. End of section 8